always interested me that we know the story and we know um, what's going on. You guys can have a seat. We've heard it before. We've heard it from childhood, many of us. We hear it year after year. I've been a pastor for um, longer than I can imagine, well over 40 years. And every year we bring the story back. And we share it again and again and again. So what happened? What just happened? Listen to the Gospel of Mark. It's one of my favorite versions of the resurrection of Jesus. Because it ends rather abruptly at the 8th verse. And then people read it later and went, oh, you know, it needs a better ending. And so they added stuff from other places. But Mark ended it where our text ends this morning. And you'll see why it seems so interesting and so different. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled the tomb. I think that's a great word. They ran for their lives out of the tomb. It must have felt suffocating and like I need to get some fresh air and they ran out for terror and amazement had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid wow what a what a moment what happened Jesus was dead and buried. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. Everybody who had been in Jerusalem knew what was going on that day. And these three women had come to anoint his body and complete the burial ritual. That was their job. Nobody else really wanted it, but they were going to show their respects. And they had questions. Who's going to move that big rock that was rolled in front of the tomb to seal it? Who's going to move it so we can get in and show our respect? And they arrived to a new circumstance. They arrived to something they didn't anticipate. They arrived to a new reality. The stone had been rolled away. And in other texts it says they thought the worst. 
Somebody had come to steal the body. Somebody had come to, to desecrate it. Somebody had come to who knows what just to discourage Jesus' followers. And then they're met with something that never crossed their minds. There's a person there sitting in a dress in white. There's a young man sitting and speaks to them. Now, you can, you can easily just call this person an angel. I don't know what angels are like. The Bible has lots of words to describe them. But the word angel ultimately just means messenger. And so this person is there and brings a message to these women. And it's no mistake that, that in Mark's gospel, it's women. The most unlikely witnesses, the least to be believed. For in that culture, women had no standing, they had no voice. And in this moment, memorialized for all generations, for thousands of years, it's women who speak up and are given this message. Don't be alarmed, he says. Might as well have said what, how the gospel starts. Fear not. In Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. Fear not, says the messenger. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Go ahead and look around. You won't find him. Go tell the disciples, especially Peter. You know what had happened with Peter. Peter, the night before, had uh, in those three days before, he had, he had denied Jesus three times. Very publicly and very clearly. He said, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know the man. Peter must have been racked with guilt. And the messenger says, go tell the disciples, especially Peter. Tell them that Jesus will meet up with them in Galilee. He's gone on ahead of you. It never occurred to them that this can happen. So the question to all of us this morning is, does it ever occur to you that this is real? That this is a reality that if you meet up with Jesus, he's alive. Really there. When you pray, there's somebody on the other side listening. You're not just speaking to the clouds or to space. There is a person who listens to you. Jesus has gone on ahead. It's a great, great phrase. Death, up until this moment, has always had the last word. Everyone knew it. It was the final no in a person's life. It was the moment where the end came. Everybody got it. Israel didn't have much of a theology of life after death. They didn't think about it too much. 
you don't come back from this huge defeat. You don't come back from this capital no. This young messenger was contradicting one of life's certainties. You know, the joke is always, you know, you know death and taxes are the certainties in life, and taxes are due next week. Um, and, uh, and so it's appropriate that we have Easter before that comes. And um, there are certainties in life. And this young man who's sitting there is giving them the message says, he's not here, he's been raised. Jesus has come back from death. And their response is appropriate. Terror and amazement. Terror and amazement. You and I are so callous to the news that it doesn't even raise our eyebrows. We don't actually ever very often sit back and go, wow. We kind of go, well, yeah. And hearing that my whole life. Terror and amazement. Is anything more of a miracle than what we claim about Jesus? Think of what's happened. Jesus lived in the same story we all find ourselves in. He might not have had the same circumstances. First century Palestine, first century Israel, wasn't anything like what we experience now. Nothing like it. But he knows the terrain of your soul. He knows the terrain of what you and I maneuver day in and day out. He knows the longing of our hearts. He knows our defeats. He knows our desires. He knows us well. He lived in it. So what does Jesus know of our circumstances? Of growing up in Orange County, of going to high school, of going to high school, or El Dorado, or any number of schools in the area. What does he know of social media and the complications of it? Of the stress of caring for aging parents and family members of spouses and parents who don't recognize you anymore. What does Jesus know of marriage? What does Jesus know of the busyness and pace of our lives? What does Jesus know of having to reinvent ourselves at age 40 or 50 or 60 or 80? to a new circumstance, to a world that's ever turning around us. He may not know our exact circumstances, but he knows the terrain of our hearts and of our souls. He knows what it's like to be abandoned, to feel alone, to feel powerless, before the powers of the world. He knows what it's like to stay faithful even when tempted. He also knows what it's like to watch friends who give in to temptation. He knows about difficult choices 
He knows about choosing God over other things. He also knows what the results are when we choose other things over God. He knows what it's like to grow up. Jesus didn't start off with all the knowledge of who he was from the outset. There were prophecies and there were words spoken to him and there was learning that went on. He knows what it's like to grow into the human being that he was. He knows the human heart. He knows its joys and he knows its deceit. He knows you and me really well. Jesus takes all of it in. Takes it all in and we're told that Jesus takes it on himself and that is nailed up on the cross with him. All that stuff. The terrain of our soul is put up there. And it dies with him. That's what we're told. That's what the witness is. Jesus is no mere guide. Jesus isn't just someone who knows how to live and is going to give us nice old nuggets of truth to live by. That's not what happened. Otherwise, there's no need for the death and resurrection. None. It's not necessary. What's necessary is that the big no, that death itself, that all of our failure, of all of our deceit and insincerity, that all those things die. And there's another word, and the word is yes. We've been talking about this for several months in this congregation, that the resurrection is God's yes to humanity. It's God's triumph over no. Some people would think that the church is all about no. I mean, we're all about things that people ought not to do, right? And I think the generations that are coming up, that's how they think of church in general, that we're just a bunch of spoiled sports. We're just a bunch of people that don't want anybody to have a good time. We don't want people to actually be enjoyed, enjoying this. We want to tell you no. There's a whole lot of things we're afraid of. They think that the church is a place of fear. And the angel comes to us and says, fear not. Do not be concerned. Every year... Our daughter has, for some time, and she uh, uh, started some graduate work. She's a theologian, and she studies a, a theologian by the name of Karl Barth. So she finished getting her degree. Karl Barth was a 20th century um, theologian from Basel, and uh, it was instrumental during World War II, uh, writing the Barman Declaration, and has been a significant theological presence in the world. And um, every year, she and her friends make a yes cake. We have a yes cake. It's back there on that table, right? And so you all get to, before we dive into it, just take a look at it. But it just, it just says yes. Um, so nothing tricky about it. But they make a yes cake. And then they accompany it with quoting Karl Barth. 
And this is what they quote. God has mercy on us. He says yes to us. He wills to be on our side, to be our God against all odds. Indeed, against all odds, because we do not deserve the mercy. Because, as we rightly suppose, he should say no to us all. But he does not say no. He says yes. God is not against us. God is for us. This is God's mercy. So what does it mean? That the greatest unknown part of our journey, what lies beyond our death, has been traveled. That there is one who has been there and has returned for us to join him. The Gospel of John says it this way, In my house there are many mansions. If it wasn't like that, if I didn't have a place for you, would I have told you to come with me? God's prepared a place for us, not just in an afterlife, but it begins now, today, as we receive Him, as we receive God's yes in our lives. I can look out at all of you and say, God says yes to you, John. Martine, God says yes to you. Kathy, God says yes to you. And we could go through each one of us this day and say, God is on your side. And Jesus' triumph over death is how it happens. Pray with me. God, we respond. Sometimes we respond to hearing this news by yawning. Sometimes we respond by going, I've heard it before. Sometimes we respond going, wow. Sometimes we ask the question, can it really be true? And there's only one way to know. We either trust you and invite you in, God. Or we choose to get up today and go our own way. You know the terrain of our hearts. Come house. Make us new. Give your yes to us so we will know that we're not abandoned. We're not left alone. We're not helpless, powerless. Your resurrection life makes all things new. Thank you for saying yes.
to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing together.